Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open the Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing to look at verse 4. We looked at the first half of the verse last week, and we'll unpack the second half this week and next week. And it's under Paul's instruction to this new people of God, those who are born again, in regards to the family and uh, the parent-child relationship. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, I pray that uh, you would give us wisdom from your word this morning. As we consider this command to us, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. John Stott says, the qualification for true blessing in parenthood is that of raising children to love the Lord and to follow his ways. He writes, It is the righteous, godly child who brings blessing and happiness to his parents. And he quotes Proverbs 23, 24. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who begets a wise son will be glad in him. My prayer is this morning you would have a passion for parenting. If you're a parent in this room, or you one day uh, will be a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you have the influence over a younger person's life, that you would have a passion for parenting. Now, If you look at your notes, I just want to kind of direct you right away. Last week, we looked at point one in your notes, and we uh, discussed that. We'll think about that more in a minute. This week, we're basically going to look at point two, bring them up. Now, I tried several different times to cut my sermon back, and every time I went to cut it back, I added more to it. So next week, uh, we'll uh, finish. So I kind of want to give you uh, just three points that actually aren't in your notes where we're unpacking, bring them up, all right? The first one is a passion for parenting. The second point is the present assessment of your parenting. And thirdly, the preeminent task, all right? So we're going to work through... Uh, those three and and basically consider what it means to bring them up. Now, I'm quite sure that this sermon will be one that you find very convicting. I don't know if there's anything that uh, tests the mettle of a man or a woman more spiritually than that of raising Uh, children. 
And my prayer is that you leave today not in despair, but you leave today encouraged with a passion to full on press into the privilege that God has given you. I, the temptation will be this. The temptation will be to leave as a parent throwing a pity party for yourself. And a pity party always fails in two ways. Someone who is feeling sorry for themselves in guilt forgets Christ. They forget the gospel of grace. And secondly, a pity party forgets the goodness of God and doubts the goodness of God. So at the very beginning, I just want to challenge you, as you find yourself maybe tending in that direction, don't forget Christ. And don't forget that God is good. Because this command to parents flows out of Ephesians chapter 6. This command doesn't come out of Exodus 20 when God is giving the law. This is sitting on top of the beginning chapters of the book of Ephesians. Let me just remind you from reading the first few verses of of Ephesians 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Himself, as our uh, to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In those six verses, right there, we're told that we are chosen, we are loved, we'll be presented holy and blameless, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven because of His blood, And that is summed up by the word grace, which is described as being lavished upon us. So if if, if you listen to the charge, parents here, and you find yourself in despair, you've forgotten where the charge is coming from. It's coming from Ephesians chapter 6, which is described how you have been saved. Yes, you were once lost. And you were by nature a child of wrath, following your own passions, following the world, being influenced by the devil. 
But God did something. God made you alive. And Paul is addressing those who have been redeemed by grace. And so it doesn't make sense to wallow in guilt. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads the one who is convicted to the throne of grace, to Christ. The devil comes with guilt in condemnation and fear of judgment. And so it's my prayer, the way you receive this message, because, because if you receive it feeling sorry for yourself, then you won't take heed to the charge. And the charge is so important and so good and such a privilege. Also, I want to begin by a short uh, message to those who are older parents. Maybe your children are grown. And so maybe the temptation for you is to just say, I've blown it. I've failed in this. This is my punishment to sit here and listen to this sermon. <laughs> that might be how you're tempted uh, to feel. But here's the thing. Christianity is always forward moving. Christianity is always forward moving. It's not a faith that wallows in regret. It's a faith where a sinner is stood up, back up on his feet, been reminded who he or she is, and then called to action. Here's how Paul said it in Philippians 3. Forgetting what lies behind, in straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul say forgetting what lies behind? Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine how Satan himself must have attacked the Apostle Paul. Who are you? a persecutor of Jesus Christ. You, you heard Jesus' own words out of heaven, supernaturally say, you're persecuting me, Paul. Not only that, you murdered my followers, or Christ's followers. Imagine how the devil could attack Paul. The only way Paul could survive is by forgetting what lies behind. And the reason why he can forget it is because it's been dealt with in Christ and pressing on forward. So if you're an older parent and you feel like, I really failed already. The damage is done. There's no more hope. Here's what I want to say to you. As long as your children are living, you're still a parent. Yes, the way you parent your children will be different. You're no longer going to parent them from authority. 
demanding certain responsibilities out of your children. That would be wrong. That isn't what God has called you to, but he has called you to parent. Even though it takes a dramatic change, it's so important. Now your parenting will be marked by prayer for your children. A mutual adult relationship with your children, whereby you encourage them in the Lord, in all wisdom. You've lived longer on this earth. You've been humbled longer than your children have been humbled. And that's what wisdom is. Recognizing not how much, how, how great you are, and now you have this to bestow on them, but how far our wisdom is from God's wisdom. That's where true wisdom comes, when we realize who we are. Parents, God has called you to an incredible pri privilege of a task to encourage them in the Lord in all wisdom, in patience, and love, and repentance, and faith. You can still repent. You can, you can still come to them. If you do feel guilt by what you've failed to do, you can confess that and be forgiven for it. So that's my plea for you not to despair, but to lean in with excitement and have a passion for what God has called you to. This incredible privilege. All right. Now let's look at the present assessment. Parents, Christian parents in America, the church probably did not equip you well. Probably did not equip you well. Probably did not helpfully unpack what God has required of you. But God still requires it of you. We still need to look in with the word of God as the mirror and take an assessment on how we are doing. Uh, Paul Washer, I've heard him often say, America is not gospel hardened. America is not gospel hardened. America is gospel ignorant. I've tested this. We're on a playground with the girls, other kids running around. I'll ask them, what church do you go to? Do you know who Jesus is? You know how often they have no idea who Jesus is. They don't know what he's done. And often as the church, because we're so good at playing the victim so often, we just say, oh, they're all gospel hardened out there. Where in reality, we live in a culture, many of whom have never heard of Christ. They don't know what Christ has done for him. So how should we get an assessment? Here's what I want to do. 
So I find this incredibly interesting. So the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. I don't know if you're familiar with this. We got a paperback. I think we got 10 of these in the Resource Center uh, uh, out here. And uh, we definitely can get more of these. Uh, but the second London Baptist Confession is a confession of faith of seven Baptist, Calvinistic Baptist churches in London uh, during the 16th century, or during the 1600s. Here's what it says as the historical introduction. And so you might say, why would these seven churches do this? Well, these seven churches were very unpopular. They, they were nonconformist. They weren't a part of the Church of England. It, so for them, it would have been uh, illegal to even be meeting, uh, depending on who was king uh, in England at the time. And, and so here's how it begins, uh, the historical introduction. Uh, it finds its origin among, among a distinct group of 17th century English separatists who later would become known as particular Baptist. It essentially means a Calvinistic Baptist uh, uh, believer. Uh, the key to understanding the Second London Confession begins first with considering the history with which it proceeded, spanning roughly three decades. So what, what, what caused these seven churches to come together and, and write this? Specifically, as that history is connected to the original seven particular Baptist churches in London, who proved to be instrumental in its publication. Since the organization of their very first church during the 1630s, they were regarded as nonconformist gatherings during a time when religious toleration was virtually unheard of. Therefore, their very existence was not only illegal, but accompanied by many unknown hazards. Further compounding their already difficult situation was the fact that they were falsely accused uh, by others of about every different type of heresy there was. Whether there was any truthfulness to it, the, these odd group of Baptist believers, any heresy you could think of was pretty much poured on them. One historian says this, no heresy was too gross to attribute to them and no practice too wicked to be associated with them. So they said, no, we're going to tell you what we believe. And so a big part of this lines up with the Westminster Confession, all right? And, but they're Baptist, and, and so there is some differences, and, and, and so we got the confession. But the interesting thing, as you look at their introduction to this, they gave a very practical reason for why they put this confession out. And, and I'll say this, every parent here, this would be a wonderful guide just to disciple your children in the instruction of the Lord. Read the verses with, with every confession of belief. Read the verses and see it. Understand what the words you don't understand mean 
and why they matter in it. So this is an incredible tool for you. But I want to read to you the last thing they say before they start the confession. Listen how practical they took their faith. And let this be like a mirror to assess maybe where we are at as American Christians, all right? So here's what they say. And verily, there is one spring and one cause of the decay of religion in our day. So so get ready. They say there's one main cause of decay. This this is in the mid-1600s. After the Reformation, Christians taking their faith seriously. They're concerned about decay they see in their culture. Here's what he says. Which we cannot but touch upon, but earnestly urge a redress of. And that is the neglect of the worship of God in families by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. You want to know why we're writing this book or this uh, confession of faith? Their most earnest charge is because as they look at society, they look into Christian homes and they say the worship of God is lacking. And the parents have been given the charge to do it. You see, we take these verses, raise them up in the discipline and instruction in the Lord. And what we think is a list of the things our friends do, conservative, Christian, friends do. Maybe homeschool, conservative, Christian, friends. What does it mean? We just assume we know what it means. And we have to let the scripture tell us what it means. And the result of this ought to be worship in the joy of the Lord in our families. You're created to be a worshiper. You realize that? Every human being worships. Everyone is worshiping someone or something. Why? Because that's the type of creature you are. You're created to worship God. And in the fall, man's heart will worship almost anything except God. Anything in his creation. Take this thing that God has made and man will grab it and stiff arm the creator of that thing and pour their life into it. Or into a person. Or into a child. We're created to be worshipers. How weird would it be for Christian families to have no worship going on in the home? Yes, worship means everything. From just eating a breakfast with your family with joy to the Lord, thankful hearts to God in your everyday things. But yes, also in Bible reading, Christians are the ones who sing, right? 
Christians are the one that have the hope of the Lord. And so the writers of this were concerned as they saw in the mid-1600s a decaying family worship. All right, sorry. I'm not doing very good just reading you the quote here. And so they say, Um, let's see, where should I pick up here? May not the gross ignorance and instability of many with the profaneness of others be just, justly charged upon their parents and masters who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and sol solemn commands which the Lord had laid upon them to catechize and instruct them that the tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in, in the scriptures. And also trained are, and, and also by their own omission of prayer and other duties of religion in their families, together with the ill example of their loose conversation, have injured them first to a neglect and then to a contempt of all piety and religion. We know this will not excuse the blindness or the wickedness of any, but certainly it'll fall heavy upon those who have thus have been the occasion thereof. They indeed die in their sins, but will not their blood be required of those whose care they were, who yet permitted them to go without warning? Yeah, led them into paths of destruction. Will not the diligence of Christians with respect to the uh, discharge of these duties in past ages rise up in judgment against and condemn many of those who would be esteemed such now? We shall conclude with our earnest prayer that the God of all grace will pour out those measures of his spirit upon us that the profession of truth may be accompanied with the soul of belief and diligent practice of it by us, that his name in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So that's how the introduction to the confession goes. It just struck me that back then they said, we, we got to spell this out. Our parents have to know what God is required of them in bringing up their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And let's just admit, I'll, I'll admit it, that is convicting to read. That is a convicting way to assess how it's going in our families. Because here's the danger. Do you see the danger? When you live in a culture where 30, 40, 50 years ago, the idea was this. Let's get rid of all that doctrine stuff. And let's love. Let's just have the love of Jesus. Let's just love one another. 
when love was the cry. That's the cry you hear today too, right? Love is love, just, just love. Well, then what happens is the results of that is such a watered-down Christianity that the good parents, in comparison to those in the 16th centuries, probably ought to be greatly convicted. And so we look around and we compare ourselves to one another, or we compare ourselves to the world, and we feel like we're good. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to have much conviction here because we compare ourselves by ourselves rather than looking at the scripture for itself. And so we looked at a passion for parenting. In a sense, we've taken a present assessment as to the high calling that our children know God. You know, we look at this and we say, man, this is deep doctrine. I got to study to even know what it means. Yeah, this was written for parents and their children so they can know all about God's attributes with the goal of what? Worship and joy in the family. Hearts that love God. And so now we're going to look at this preeminent task. You know, we can see this task. We can hear it even in the psalmist. Psalm 71, 16. Here's what the psalmist says. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, God, I will come. I'll remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me. And I'll still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to one another, to proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those who come. So the psalmist is saying, I was taught this in my youth and I'm going to proclaim the greatness of God to the next generation. This is the task. How are they going to know who the Lord is? How are they going to know what the Lord has done? How are they going to know if we do not teach them? He says, your righteousness, verse 19 of Psalm 71, your righteousness, O God, reaches the heavens. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities and will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase the greatness, uh, my greatness, and comfort me again. I will praise you with the harp of your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O oh Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. My tongue will talk of your righteousness, righteous health all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. So the psalmist is saying, I was taught from my youth how great God was. So that now in my old age, yes, God caused me to see many calamities. But he showed me he is good. And now I need to speak to my children 
that are going to see calamities and see difficult things in their life. And the question is, are they going to remain with Christ? Are they going to know God is good? Are they going to be trained how to handle suffering in this world? Or will the devil gobble them up as the difficult circumstances come? Psalm 78, 4, he says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You see what God has called us to do? How to pass it down? What are we to pass down? The goodness of God. The goodness of God. You see, you can teach your children how to be moral, virtuous, Christian people and not show them the joy of God, the goodness of God. We can do it like we talked about last week. We can provoke our children to anger with the authority God has given to us. Before Paul dares tell us to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, he first says, don't provoke them to anger. Do not provoke them to anger. That hangs as guardrails to all Christian parenting. And so we see in first 4, he says, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what does he mean to bring them up? Ectrephal. Is the, is the Greek word. To bring them up. He, here's the meaning of it. it. It's the idea of like providing food for, to feed or to nourish, to rear or to bring up a child. It's this idea of nourishing them so that they can grow. It's like the opposite of provoking them to anger, which would bring them down. In contrast to that, we're to nourish them, to help them grow up. Paul used this same word in chapter 5, verse 29, when he said, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. That's that word. We're to nourish our children. We're to feed them. We're, we're to bring them up. John Calvin, uh, his translation is this, let them be fondly cherished. Let them be fondly cherished. I don't know. Growing up in the conservative homeschool community, I, I was never taught that that's what bring them up means that our children are to be fondly cherished with this warning of not provoking them to anger. It's this idea that, I mean, even to the animal kingdom, 
the creatures naturally do this. The mother goose will chase away danger of anyone or anything that jeopardizes her goslings. They by nature feed. The birds bring food and nourish the birds. Human mothers, you know this, right? They talk about nesting. It's about time to have a baby. What are you thinking about? Getting the home ready. A mother's intuition, right? There's something natural about caring for the physical nature of your child. Now listen to me. In your flesh, in your sinful, selfish flesh, nourishing your children spiritually will not come naturally. Your sin will not teach you to do that. It won't. What will come naturally to you is to be a selfish mother or a selfish father when you are acting in the flesh and not walking according to the spirit. And so this charge of bring them up is not less than giving them food so they can grow up, but obviously he's speaking about a spiritual nourishing, which means it's not just going to automatically happen. It's not just going to automatically happen. All right? So it means to bring up. William Hendrickson uh, says this, it's to rear them tenderly. It's their God-given task, he, he, he notes. Nobody can adequately or completely replace them. This is what God has called you to do. And here's the thing. If you don't bring them up in the Lord, in one sense, they won't be brought up. In one sense, they will remain spiritual, either, either spiritually dead children or people, or spiritually malnourished babes in Christ. But it's not that no one will teach them nothing if you don't do it. The world is happy to teach your children and to raise them up and to train them. And what the world will tell them is a demonic lie. The world will tell them, lean in to the goodness that is in them. Fan the flame of their self-will. Which nothing could be more harmful to them than that. John Stott says this parents who do not fully and tirelessly commit themselves to the godly teaching and training of their children are likely to wake, wake up one day and to find their sons and daughters inextricably enmeshed in the ungodly and immoral philosophies and practices of the world. Despite what the world may say, children are to obey and honor their parents. They are not to be liberated from their parents and enabled to choose whatever they want to do and the way they want to do it. Anything a child must learn, he must be taught. Their inclinations will be away from God and in rebellion to him. The illustration he gives is, 
If you just leave your children to make their own meals for themselves, they're going to eat junk food. <laughs> That's the inclination of their heart. If they just have full freedom, it's going to be popsicles and popcorn for supper. That's just what it'll be. They're not going to cook for themselves green beans. Very unlikely. Another commentator said this, like Jesus, every child must grow socially in favor with men. A child's most dominant attitude is selfishness. His interests are totally self-centered. His conduct are, are his own wants and needs are all he knows and cares about. That, of course, does not always remain a childhood trait. He must be taught to share, taught to be considerate of others, taught not to put his own interests above those and everyone else, and taught not to become uh, disappointed or angry when he cannot have his own way. This is going to take time and patience, is it not? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, if a parent gave as much thought to rearing their children as they do to rearing their animals and flowers, it would be a very different situation. How often do you need to eat? How often do you need nourishment? Every day, every day. Your children need a lot of discipline and a lot of instruction over and over and over and over and over again. And you say, well, if I, if, if I parent like that, how I'm supposed to, that sounds like death to me. <laughs> well, Christ may have called you to take up your cross and deny yourself for the good of others, right? So to bring them up is going to take much effort and, and much consistency. And if you notice in this text, the discipline and instruction were to, were to bring them up in the dis, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, parents, understand this. this is, if you leave with nothing this morning, get this picture. Behind the parents' teaching and correction stands Christ. Behind your discipline and instruction, in all your correction, it's of the Lord. It's not of you. It's not your instruction, and it's not your discipline for your peaceful day and your glorious end. God didn't just say, parenting's hard, so I'm going to give you something. It's called authority. Now you can kind of oppressively make your children do what you want to make your life easier. What's over top of this is Christ. The goal of it is Christ. It's not mere obedience to parents and earthly authorities, but ultimately to Christ. If we are honest, the temptation is to selfish, Christless parenting, though we will claim Christ as the one who gave it to us. And it's our right to wield it in this particular way. 
parenting then is stewardship for Christ. These are God's children, are they not? And we're a steward to instruct our children in Christ's instruction, to discipline them the way Christ disciplines us, to be patient with them the way Christ is patient with us. Because we're not the goal, are we? What is our life? All we have to point to is Christ in us. So let's think of this. Let's just think of one example here. If we teach our children, like the Second London Confession will teach us to, all about the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, if we, if we teach them that as parents, this is authoritative. God's word is authoritative over your life. It's sufficient for your whole life. And you drill that into your children and they can quote this. But when they see the word of God challenge you and they see you reject the authority of the scripture or they see you in anxiety seek after all sorts of different things to comfort your soul rather than the scripture. Though you may get credit from your friends that you raised them right, isn't the thing we train our children in when we do that hypocrisy? See, this is, this is how we get religious self-righteousness. Our kids know the stuff but if they don't see us submit to the authority of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word, though we say the right thing, we would train them up to be hypocrites. And I just guarantee you, that home will not be full of forgiveness and the joy of the Lord. It just won't be. It'll, it'll look good. That can look great. So those little words, of the Lord, of the Lord, do not provoke them to anger at the beginning of the text. And of the Lord at the end of the text describes the attitude, the heart attitude, the ethos of all Christian instruction. And so we can fall into the pit different ways. So I'm speaking to hard people. I mean, we don't promote homeschool as though this is what you all have to do. 90% of our church homeschools. Praise God, it's a great thing to do. I just want to end by pointing to a couple pitfalls. Raising them in the Lord does not just mean keeping them out of the world. Just because you have them at home and you're protecting them from the world does not mean you're disciplining them and instructing them in the Lord. That's a temptation to think that. And the other warning is, your kids might know this whole book, but the question you need to ask is, does Christ have authority, parents, over your own heart? 
is the one who's repenting most, often, and demonstrating that the parents? Or is it just always the children? So I just see two ditches that would be easy to fall in. Neglect of it, or a, a hypocrisy that teaches the right thing, but doesn't, the Lord doesn't actually get to have the authority in the family. Colossians 3.21 says this, Do not provoke your children, do not embitter them, lest they become discouraged. What's the opposite of provoking your children? This is the last thought, and then we'll close. What's the opposite of provoking them to anger? What is the opposite of embittering your children in discouragement? Isn't the opposite, wouldn't the opposite of that be joy? John MacArthur was, I mean, uh, John Piper was laying this out. Wouldn't it be joy, peacefulness, happiness, holiness? This is the dis disposition of the discipline and admonition in the Lord that the, the discipline and admonition of the Lord is meant to uh, bring about. That's the fruitfulness. That's the goal. And so parents, let's have a passion. We want our children passionately trusting in Christ on their toughest days. We want them believing he is good. He is enough. He is patient. He is forgiven. We don't want our children sinning and running away from Christ. We want them knowing Christ as the one who draws sinners to himself. We want them to know mercy and grace and holiness. And so let's lean in to the great call God has put on us. Father, I thank you. In your wisdom, you designed the family. You designed how reproduction would happen. Father, you decided to use parents in this stewardship role to bring them up in your teaching and your instruction. Father, we just admit, we often fail as parents. We often fall short of what you have called us to. And Father, yet I thank you that as parents in that situation, we have an opportunity to repent and trust, to humble ourselves and thus teach our children what it means to follow Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us urge one another on. Father, we know the culture is against us, but let us look to Christ. Let us believe you are good and urge one another on in this area. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.